to Sin City with Nick Menezes and Dane McLean. Live chat about everything cinema, from new releases, iconic films, and plenty more for you movie lovers. Live for CMRU.ca. And now, to the men behind the mic. Dane McLean, Nick Manessis, and Matthew Zaharia. I'm Dane McLean. Thanks for another great episode ahead. And I'm Nick Manessis. Thank you for joining us again, Matt, for your eighth episode appearance, by the yeah. way, today. Yeah, it's wow. been eight already. Yes, that's wow. right. It's, today we'll be discussing a very very special film and one close to our hearts and one of our fa- personal favorites The Shining by Stanley Kubrick which has turned 40 years old as of last year so oh, I don't there are like this is one of the greatest one of the most influential horror films ever not to mention one of the most debated ever made that we really wish to give this film the proper treatment for our podcast and then given that this is probably one of your favorite scary movies ever i'd like you to share in your thoughts to be the first one to start us off hmm. yeah definitely i would i would consider this uh probably one of the most influential films as far as uh, my own sort of interest in cinema. Um, yeah, I, I mean, even before I saw it, it was sort of that it has that uh, that mythology around it before you it. Like when I was a teenager, I knew about it, but I wasn't sure what to expect from it. And I, I watched it in uh, film class and I was really pretty scared by it, but I loved it. I, I really loved it. I always return to it every few years, and it's always interesting seeing it through sort of older eyes. So I think it gets better with time, too. And rightfully so, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, and um, you're going to say something, Matthew? No, I would agree with um, Dane on that one. The uh, sense that everyone knows it, even though they may haven't seen it. The I know... Uh, that is partly due to the uh, it's um, just uh, how well known it is and how but also I would have to say attribute to it a bit to the Simpsons parody of it, the shinning um, how people are familiar with this idea of um, uh, being driven mad by isolation and being trapped in the overlook. It's, yeah. Exactly, and there's, when you watch it, there's like a word that keeps popping up whenever I watch or hear about The Shining, and when it's part of the discussion is surreal, because The Shining, just everything from the atmosphere of the Overlook Hotel to the, the feel, the tone, it feels like a mashup from the influences of Dario Argento and, of course, David Lynch. Like, there's something so eldritch, something is just clearly off about this film. It feels like we are also descending into madness with the Torrance family. Yeah. I would agree with you there. It's, um, uh, 
for me, The Shining, uh, when I first watched it, I watched it um, last year, right before Dr. Sleep came out. Um, that was the first movie we did for our, for my horror movie club. And the horror doesn't come from scares. It's the, sen- it's the atmosphere of foreboding and this disconnection of reality that you experience while you're in the overlook, like impossible wounds, um, disturbing imagery, and throughout the movie, it's, they don't, um, unlike other movies where they may just set this upon you as in disturbing imagery for uh, disturbing imagery's sake, but if you pay attention to the movie, if you um, devour it is, I would say, a good word, and um, you get these hints at it through the through line of a previous caretaker, the incident that happened last time, and it, it tells a story within a story, I feel, that there's more to the overlook than we what we see. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like, and that I think is has to be The Shining's greatest strength, especially in terrifying the audience, which is the level of ambiguity. Like, think about this for a second. Like when you when you're walking down a very dark alley and you hear like a noise to the right, you you'd think it's something or someone waiting for you. That would be our instinct, our, it plays in our primal fear. We don't know what is on the other side, but just, it has us guessing, which just doesn't make it any better. It just unsettles us even more. Yeah, the the fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. And this is, um, you gonna say something, Dane? No, no, too bad. Um, So, like, for example, like, for example, and this is one, huge key difference between the film and the novel because in the novel we we already know the hotel is haunted we see that there are ghosts but in the film it's more you know kept more ambiguous open to interpretation like it leaves us wondering like are the Torrance family really going insane or is there really something supernatural at play like for the most part it's all kept under mystery really yeah uh, uh, speaking of the original novel, um, Stephen King uh, was not a fan of no. it when it came out, no. uh, to the point where he actually, I think, uh, produced a miniseries that is more akin to the book, but it has the more, um, I would say, wackier elements, like weird hedge animals and that. Um, but I feel like um with Stephen King as an author um a lot of his stories are um good to a point where he like pulls the blanket off and uh does it because I recently watched Children of the Corn which is um based on a Stephen King novel and it's about this group of kids who basically take over a town led by this one kid Isaac who's 
um, it was an excellent performance in the film, but um, it, it got to a point where that dissolved and it was just like a big smoke monster at the end. And same, and I feel like when he does that, when he says what something is and reveals the curtain, it ruins the mystique of it. And that's where I feel um, Stanley Kubrick went the, in the right way with adapting The Shining, is mm-hmm. keeping it veiled and keeping the audience guessing. Mm, exactly. Like, there are, of course, a few exceptions to that rule. Just, just a tiny bit. Like, for example, the fact that when Jack Torrance was locked in the freezer and then somehow the ghost of the caretaker, uh, Delbert Grady, he opens the door. Like, we, we don't really see him opening the door, but that just adds to the ambiguity that is Jack really losing it or, you know, is there something really supernatural at play here? And yes, like Steve, as we all know, it's at this point it's common knowledge that Stephen King he he disliked the film adaptation of The Shining because The Shining, for all its successes, it's it cut out it omitted so many important parts from the novel, like especially with Jack, because in the in the original novel, Jack did go insane, but he actually loved his family. He wanted to do right by them, but in the film, he just hated his family right from the get go. It seems. Yeah, well, I would say he hated. I would say it's problematic. It's for one, his alcoholism, and two, is the influence of the hotel. I feel like. If it was just a different scenario, if it was isolate, if it wasn't the overlook, if it was any other scenario, I feel Jack wouldn't have, um, wouldn't have tried to kill his family. I feel like it was because he was in the overlook, out of everywhere he could be, isolated with his family, that that influence pushed him over the edge to insanity. Because Yes, there was evidence that he um, um, abused Danny, but because of that, um, but after that he was sober for years, years after that experience, and it was only when he came to the Overlook did he start spiraling back down. Yeah, and also the fact that while he or both versions did die at the end, Jack, in the novel anyways, he actually redeemed himself by telling his, by trying to save his son before he, his demise. And that's the thing that Stephen King disliked the most, that it failed to show one of the most important themes and aspects of the novel, which was redemption and the the dissolution of the Torrance family. It felt more like he, like in, as the years passed, he did enjoy, like the film, ju- but just as it was, just as a film, but not as an adaptation of his novel, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm just gonna go back, sorry, to um, Matthew was saying also. I had an idea that came up uh, with, um, I, yeah, I feel like this film is really, there's like lots of different haunting going on, like you said, like um, 
Jack is haunted by his past, by his alcoholism, and the family's haunted by the, the abuse that, that Jack inflicted. And then also the hotel itself is haunted by the, the previous caretaker, but also it's sort of literally on an Indian burial ground as well. So it's literally in, that, in, in, the, in the film, I think that's where the haunting is coming from, right? And, um, so it's there's so much to it. It's it's very it's really like the I feel like it's all of these uh, dark pasts, dark histories that uh, can continue uh, evolving in people's lives, and uh, it's almost impossible to escape that in a sense. At least within the film, I'm not saying yeah. in real life. In some ways, in real life, it is though. You can you can look at that right like a lot of. Uh, past mistakes in history are repeated all the time and um, abuses yeah. against people so um, I, th- I feel like people can break that if they are willing to but mm-hmm. I, I mean like in the, in, this, in, the, in the film that's the main point it's making is that people can't escape it I think yeah. that's right but there's also um, with the picture at the end that from 1930, is it 1931, I think? Um, 1927, if uh, I recall. 1927. Um, that is, uh, shows a picture of Jack Torrance at an elaborate party in the Golden Room. And this, um, I feel, is what it's like, um, that it was part of the hotel all along, that whether it's... Um, Jack, he either became part of the hotel or it's sort of history repeating itself where he's always been part of the hotel in one form or another he will always return to the hotel and then repeat just a cycle of uh, as Dane was saying a cycle of abuse in a way where mm-hmm. they just keep coming back to it that's right and, yeah Sorry, you go. Um, um, no, you, you go first. Um, you want to finish? Um, one, one thing I was mentioning is that the, um, there's a lot of icon, iconography of Native American art throughout the hotel and the fact that it's mentioned on, that it was built on a Native American burial ground. Um, but what, uh, with connecting to that, um, during the film, uh, nearing the end of the climax, Shirley Duvall character, um, um, she wears a jacket that has cowboys on it and teepees and just all this sort of icon uh, iconography. And I feel that that is representative of not really sort of um a transfer of the power dynamics. She is taking up the mantle of the cowboy, but in this scenario, rather than being the conquerors or the oppressors, she is vulnerable and being threatened by this force of the hotel. And it's it's sort of, in a way, revenge for not not against Shelley in particular, but just the suffering inflicted upon the Native Americans that were once here. Wow, mm-hmm. I, I I never I never thought of that. I'd seen the film 
two times and I've never even noticed that. Like, and not to mention the fact that they mentioned the Overlook Hotel was built on a Native American site ground, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've read about also um, sort of the idea of how Jack kind of represents the 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 settler pioneer in the West, and how um, sort of in a symbolic way, but also they're literally there alone in, in sort of a, the natural environment. And like we mentioned, the Native American burial ground, and sort of it, it, the film really echoes, I think, in a lot of ways um, from a lot of documentaries have focused on this and different people focused on this, and I think there's truth to it. Uh, definitely, it's sort of echoing of the genocide of the indigenous people in the United States and North America, and how he. I th I, yeah, like, I, I mean, everything from the iconography throughout the hotel, but then also, um, I'm kind of losing my train of thought here. I had another point, but there's there's a lot of a lot of people that have really depicted this or uh, analyzed this really well. Yeah. And I feel like that's it's a strong theory. I think it's a really strong theory. Um, yeah, but with theories that if you, there, there's a lot of, thinking around this movie that it gets a bit out there like I know one of the more popular ones is how this is uh, Stanley Kubrick's submission that he filmed the moon landing you read my mind with um, for one Danny wearing the Apollo 13 sweater and then the design of the floor that looks similar to the launch pads I feel like that may be true, but uh, unlikely because that's not even getting into just film conspiracy, but also hi historical conspiracy where mm -hmm. uh, believing that the moon landing was actually fake would, would detract from the achievement of like thousands of individuals who worked on it and it would be um, I feel like he, Stanley Kubrick, put that in there as a red herring to just sort of, as to unsettle the audience, make them question what they previously assumed to be true. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So many of Kubrick's films, there's just so many things you could you could look at and really obsess over, but I think that's what he, he might have done purposefully. Not surprising, he, of course. He wanted to, yeah, wanted to, wanted to create, I think, some conversations on his work because it really makes it long-lasting. I mean, so many film classes focus on his work and you can really yeah. spend a lot of time on any one of his films. Absolutely. Looking yeah. from so many viewpoints, which is amazing. Absolutely, yeah, and also not surprising given how Stanley Kubrick has a really, really excellent attention to detail. Like, let's talk about how beautifully shot The Shining is, because The Shining, I think, has got to be, in my opinion, the most beautiful horror film I've ever seen, because every shot, the, the way the camera moves, the different angles, how it's placed, it really emphasizes 
it really has a purpose in telling the story and it really adds to the the scares you know with all the close-ups the god's eye view of the hedge maze this is truly a breathtaking experience even for a horror film especially like and when in the shots in the overlook hotel like as you mentioned before matt because there's something the architecture of the hotel it feels very it doesn't make any sense like for one scene like in when jack was visiting uh the the boss of the hotel uh mr Ullman, there's a i noticed there is a long hallway that right behind his office and yet when he goes to Ullman's office there is a window where the hallway should be like yeah. it has an uncanny valley feel to it almost mm. definitely yeah the, the layout of the, the hotel really doesn't uh, make sense if you were to track it in your mind or create i think a lot of artists have rendered um versions of it and it's just nothing lines up it's pretty nonsensical but that adds to the anxiety and that adds to the confusion of, uh, as, as the audience. Really, nothing that is supposed to be around the corner or that you think will be around the corner will be there. It's always sort of uh, different every time they walk around. Exactly, yeah. I think... Oh, sorry. No, no, you go first. Um, you want to say something. I was going to say, it's also inspiring because you realize as a filmmaker, you don't have to be perfect as far as sometimes you can use that inconsistency to your advantage and create confusion. Mm -hmm. I think Kubrick's a perfectionist. He, 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 it's not like he accidentally made the layout of the hotel wrong. I think he, he did it on perfect, like an imperfect perfection, mm -hmm. right? He wanted to, to do it that way. But really interesting that you could, you could really, I think we talked about this on the Oscar show. Uh, I think John brought it up, John, Jonathan Cope. Um, how in the, the film The Father also, I think they they, they didn't really, uh, there was inconsistency with the location and the, and the design of the interiors also, which created confusion for the audience. So I think it's a great technique for directors to... Right you are, right you are. Like it feels, it feels also that much like with the Torrances, we are also losing our minds. It's almost as if the film is like gaslighting us, almost. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, I know, um, well, speaking of Kubrick, it brings up the um, ethical dilemma of his treatment of Shelley Duvall during the filming of the movie. Oh, yeah. Whether it's right, if, well, it's not right, but whether the, um, a piece of art is worth the suffering someone has to go through, the, the suffering you inflict on someone. Because during the filming of The Shining, Stanley Kubrick told all the cast and crew to ignore Shelley Duvall, not talk to her, not uh, mention her any, um, not, not to just even treat her as a person. And um, she would have to do take after take after take them. I believe the one scene on the stairs where oh, yeah. Jack is swinging the bat at her, that was the one that is in the movie is like the 200th, 200th, 200th take of that shot. Mm -hmm. And she had a mental breakdown during filming, her hair was falling out, it was 
a lot and I know Alfred Hitchcock was also also did this to it but it's like was it worth it for all the suffering that she went through for this movie it's true yes yeah. I, I, I feel personally Kubrick could have I think he could have done it without without that I feel like there's sort of the misconception right like you have to be a jerk to be a genius I think that's I think that's bullshit like there's lots of artists and filmmakers that are making great movies and getting great mm-hmm. performances out of their actors by treating them well um, but I know what you mean like Shelley Duvall also she really unfortunately a lot of people have really criticized her performance which I think is ridiculous like I, I never understand yeah. that she even got a uh, Razzie nomination for worst actress at the time this film was released it's mm-hmm. mind-boggling really yeah. Which I don't understand because I think it's a great, it is a great performance. It might be like I, I am really convinced by her, and I am yeah. really, you you feel empathetic towards her throughout the whole film. Yeah, I remember in film studies sometimes some students would be basically like laughing out loud at her performance, saying how bad it was. And I was thinking it's not. I, don't, I I didn't think it was. I I thought it was good, but I feel like for her. It's pretty. It's pretty unfortunate how that kind of response. Like the film is, I feel like critically acclaimed, but it was sort of met with lukewarm, a lukewarm reception in the beginning. And I, there was a lot of animosity towards her. I feel like it's just a lot of. Um, I think still a lot of sexism too. People just. Uh, I don't know. Trying to find faults in, in her performance, but I think it was. I think it was good. Definitely, yeah, I, I agree. Like, and yeah, to your pointing, like that's true about The Shining, because and that that same logic would be applied to all of Kubrick's films, because Stanley Kubrick's films, at the time they came out, they didn't receive a lot of positive or warm feeling. But as time passed, his films got critical reevaluation and are now regarded as historical landmarks in the history of cinema. And to your point, I agree, like, well, I will never, and I think I can say the same for all of us, well, we will never, ever condone, you know, abusing an actor just for the sake of a performance. Shelley Duvall really, she really knocked it out of the park. She really delivered an amazing performance, really. Thanks for Yeah. I, I think the casting of her was excellent, but you... you, you don't mistreat your actors for any reason. It's you got, there's a level of respect you have to have with everyone while working, you know, working together. No matter where you are, that you you shouldn't do that. No matter what your end goal is or what product may become of it, you just should treat people as people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I feel like it was a, sort of a bold decision as well to cast her because. Um, she's not traditionally beautiful. It's not like a big supermodel star that they had for it. But I feel like that sort of grounds it and realizes it where this is a family. This is an average family. There may not be these like supermodels that you see in modern movies where it's the people at peak performance and it, it, ground, it sort of grounds it in a sense of um, a realistic depiction of family rather than the, idea, the fantasized family. 
I agree. I think yeah, I agree. I think they made the right call with casting, you know, a mostly an an average looking average looking actors to fill in the role of a family because it really makes the the experience the characters more relatable in the situation that they find themselves in. So really I think really justified and good call with the casting also. Yeah. Yeah, Jack Nicholson. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, uh, I was going to just mention, but with uh, Jack Nicholson, I have heard criticisms that he um, is just being Jack Nicholson. He's not really playing a character. He's just um, doing that because he does similar roles and he, when he was like the Joker and... Um, other stuff he's been in it's just this overly act people i think uh, i've heard he, it was just like overacting and all this but I, I don't i feel like that's what the role required is this mm-hmm. over the top insanity that jack nicholson can provide yeah like he's... sorry dane you can yeah. yeah i was going to talk about jack nicholson as well i think uh, yeah in my opinion it's probably uh, top, I, i'd say potentially his best performance i think I think, in my opinion, um, for sure. And, yeah, I mean, like, he, he was sort of, throughout his career, sort of, he's always been casted. He, he's, he's been casted in interesting ways. He's always played sort of, not quite an outcast, but he's sort of, um, uh, I don't know how to describe his roles, but like you said, like, he's, he's played a lot of kind of, unstable characters and he just has that energy he has but he's also super uh, charismatic at the same time yeah so i feel like to get someone that is really scary to you need to kind of have that charisma also because it's sort of the two kind of go hand in hand with a lot of horror films some of the scariest characters are also charismatic um, American, American Psycho, uh, you know, you could list dozens of other characters, but yeah, Jack Nicholson is sort of in an interesting time in his career, but right? he's sort of looking, he looks a lot older, you know, he's starting to kind of bald, and he looks, he looks more, he looks like uh, perfect for this, for this role. I mean, he probably was getting a lot of different, like, opportunities at this time, and he could have probably said uh you know i'm going to retire or whatever but he continued on and he really put himself in some pretty you know roles that yet embrace a pretty dark character and sort of show it sort of embrace sort of this gross character (laughs) he does it he does it so well he does it so well it's inspiring because you can just continue on in your career and uh really embrace who you are in every stage in your life which he which he's done Absolutely, yeah, and to show as further proof of his acting prowess, his eyebrows are even expressive at the same time. His, like Jack Nicholson's eyebrows deserve an Oscar category all on their own. Yeah, and, he's, and, he's one of the best. Mm, and notice also the attention to detail as well, to show how much he's losing his grip on sanity. Like, he started off the film as, you know, very more clean-shaven and with really good good hair job, but as time passes, he becomes, he's, it's like a five o'clock shadow and he becomes more and more disheveled as the film progresses. Really, really great yeah. top, top of his class, top performance for sure. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely not afraid to be himself completely. Like he has 
some some characters, some actors, you know, they they want to be look. They probably want to be in movies that just make them look good or whatever. But Jack Nicholson's always trying to just he wants to transform into these characters, even if they're sort of terrifying. And I mean, Jack Torrance, I think he's one of the most terrifying people. I mean, just uh, his descent into madness is one of the most disturbing. Descent into madness, madness I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Descent into madness I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Here's Johnny. <laughs> and, and fun fact that that line "Here's Johnny" was actually improvised, and. Okay. Jack Nicholson knew what he was doing when he was cutting the doors with the axe because before filming The Shining, he worked part-time as a fireman, so he only knew his job really well. And if there's one thing that scene taught me, or this film taught me, is I will never play hide-and-seek with Jack Nicholson, ever. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, going back to what you were saying, though, there's a sense of... I would describe The Shining as a psychological horror. Oh yeah. Because it's there's many. Um, if because uh, it's sort of in a way um, Jack's descent into madness, but it's you you get to see it unfold before us. It's not abrupt and sudden. It's not the isolation. You see him be tempted by the hotel. At first, um, uh, by the uh, lady in room 237, Mm -hmm. and then by Lloyd at the bar. And it's like each time they're offering a different vice to him. And as we see, uh, he does have this addictive personality from being a former alcoholic. And it's the hotel playing on these temptations to succumb to, to, to uh, control him, to make him part of the hotel. So exactly, yeah, yeah, and also that's that reminds me to connect with what you said about Jack's descent into madness, like. One scene that connects it all is the, you know, where Wendy finds the typewriter, the, you know, the all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, because it really sends a disturbing implication. It's not that Jack has been going crazy, but how long has he been like this? Because, yes, we see those time cards where it says Monday, the days of the week and the time, but it's never quite clear, you know, how much time has passed during the whole movie, which really adds the question again, that how long has Jack been like this? And just with that, um, I I just discovered uh, recently that that's not just from The Shining, that's just a common phrase. I, I, I honestly thought when I first saw that, that it was originated from The Shining, but I uh, was doing a short story and it appeared and it's like, oh yes, uh, um, it's not, it, it's not from The Shining, which, but I feel like it encapsulates what's happening because he's um, put in this pressure to work, to write a book as, um, but he just doesn't and he that leads back to the temptation that he would rather um, drink or have sex or 
whatever rather than actually work and i and honestly like who hasn't had that mentality where they just would rather do anything but what they should be doing mm-hmm. yeah he's sort of like he's giving into his animalistic desires right it's, yeah i think yeah yeah going back to um, psychology if we look at it with freud's model it's the it taking control the the id you mean not the id and the ego well there's the id um the ego and the superego and the id is the primal nature of that man man's savage and primal instincts for sex and violence basically i know um freud's model is outdated but a lot of films and media still use it as a just sort of a um general discussion of the three types of three aspects to personality then there's the i think superego is the one um the ego is the rational thought where it is um the conscious thought that um everyone has and the decision making and then there's the superego which sort of is your subconscious suppressing your id and keeping that under control making sure you um don't do that but it's um but in this if if we were to apply this to the shining it is um we could see it as um breaking it into the three parts as our three main characters where uh, Jack Torrance is the id, Wendy's the ego and Danny's the super ego. In the in the sense where um Wendy is the perception of it is the just being ex- the uh, conscious element to it. um and if danny is there to suppress the id to suppress jack it's when he was strangled that could be representative of the id taking over physically strangling the superego so it can escape well not wow. so um yeah it's not like the, I mean, you, you first. No, uh, I wasn't. I don't. You go next. So first off, that's that's a really interesting perception, like the id fighting back against um the super ego, right? So yeah. it's basically like the insanity wanting to fight back against the you know the rationality within himself. Is well, um, I'm gonna go more into psychology. <laughs> Sorry, um, uh, but then if we also look at this applying it to more jungian theories uh, carl jung where it's the um, unconscious there's a conscious unconscious and sort of super super um not really super conscious but it's the um idea of um the collective unconscious the spiritual connection everyone experiences that is 
that we we experience in the unconscious. And if you view the shining as that element where Danny is the conduit of the super unconscious and uh, well, the collective unconscious, and he his expression. And the shining is an expression of this, the supernatural power that allows him to communicate with Doc Halloran. It's, um, and uh, Wendy is a conscious again, because she is the one in the real, she is grounded in the real world and has no connection to this spiritual element. And then, um, Jack Torrance is the unconscious, the, again, primal desire, desires that are unleashed. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, I need to look more into this, v- but... Very complex. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. I'm speechless. That's true. I feel like probably. probably. I, I think I would. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah. Um, so I, I would defend what you say. Whatever way you look at it, The Shining is a psychological horror movie. Um, that leads me to asking what is probably the biggest question about this film. What is it that makes The Shining scary? Well, first of all. Like The Shining, it, I, what makes it unique to us, to all audiences, is that it subverts, it defies the conventional horror genres and cliches, which is what Stanley Kubrick wanted to do, make a horror film that is de- unique from the ones we got before. Like The Shining is yet another good horror film that doesn't rely on jump scares. Instead, it relies more on the tension the atmosphere, the feeling of dread that something is not right. Like in the camera shots, notice how when there are big open spaces in the hotel and the characters are smaller in comparison, it feels like the hotel is devouring them. It feels like they're in the belly of a beast. It's the theme of isolation, the theme, the figure that something is clearly not right. Like you guys, like when you guys are say like somewhere alone, like walking, in a park and it's you're all, there's no one there you're all alone and it's quiet don't you sometimes like get that feeling that you you are being watched by something or someone where you start to question whether you really are alone that is where the shining well shines in scaring yeah. the audience yeah um uh, just one more thing uh the shining's also a revolutionary in the technology it used. It was one of the one of one of, if not the first, uh, movies to use the Steadicam right. for the tracking shots and also the overhead aerials at the beginning when they're dr- driving down the road have been used in variety many other films because oh, yeah. mm-hmm. like it was used in Blade Runner for when they re-edited the ending. Um, and it has many inspirations like I know the not to really spoil the ending of 
WandaVision, but they, they use a shot that is very indicative of that overhead flying through the mountains shot. Yeah, speaking of which, just the, the intro, I mean, that's just quite a way to start film the, the, the chanting music, yeah. the heavy bass. Yeah. Oh, man, it's incredibly memorable. And from the beginning, you're already just magnetized to the screen and kind of you're, you, you feel anxiety. You have no idea why. Because a lot of horror films, I find, they sort of start off soft. So it's, it's, they're trying to build up to something by showing you kind of like normal life and make you feel comfortable and then they shock you. But with The Shining, it's sort of from the beginning, it's creepy, but you don't understand why because it, it is normal, but it's just the ambiance. It's like the, the, it's just the feeling of the film. You feel dread from like the opening scene, I think, the opening shot. Mm, agree, agreed. Like it really, it really sets the mood, the tone of the film, and with the camera following the car of the Torrance family, it really, it really punches you with that dread that the family that they are in for a long nightmarish ride. It really sets the viewer, prepares them for the hell that awaits them. Exactly. Yeah, and for the time, I don't know, nineteen eighty. Probably yeah. around yeah, then they would film. Yeah. Um, I feel like to it would have had to be helicopters, I guess. Yeah, it, yeah, it was. I think if you pay, like pay really close attention, you might be able to see one in the reflection mm-hmm. of the water. But yeah, they they were actually in just helicopters and had the camera out as they film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really, um, I didn't they. I thought they used, you know, a drone to film that those entire shots. Or what weren't drones invented during the making of The Shining yet? Uh, I don't think so. Probably, I feel like drones have only been around maybe 20 years or so. Yeah, because this was the 80s where uh, drones invented. That's a good question, I think. Well, I guess the first use of drones was in 1849. Not the same drones we're thinking about. Yeah, it's also for like practical applications because I I think drones were first used as in the military and then they became commercialized for use. Yeah, like as far as film making use for drones, I don't. I feel like that's only in the last. Two, two decades, maybe three yeah. decades, but I could be wrong. But yeah, it's um, also what's interesting is I mean, you would never know that the film was shot, I think, in three different locations quite far apart. I mean, interior, all of the interior scenes of the hotel were actually in England, I think, in a studio. But uh, so none of it was actually filmed. I think even the exterior scenes of the hotel, yeah, that was also in so they were able to really merge the uh, three different locations because I think the hotel actually exists in somewhere in the northwest of the United States. I forget which state. Yeah. And then I think some other scenes are taken from another location. Yeah. But it all feels like one place. Yeah, it's the Stanley Hotel that <clears throat> was what inspired Stephen King to write it. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think the fact that they were able to construct a hotel that it it really it did it did look like the hotel. I know that I think some of the exterior scenes might have been shot also uh, in front of a studio. I'm not entirely sure, but yeah, for the time, I mean the 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 design that went into it, the production was really impressive. Because some films that do that, you can kind of tell, you can kind of notice when things are inconsistent with this film. It embraces its inconsistencies and it uses it to its advantage, like I said earlier. But also does a good job of, if you're not paying attention, you might think it is all the way it's supposed to be. But that's when, when you start looking closer, you realize it's not, and it's even as far as locations go. No, no, and more, more about the beautiful cinematography and overall production design of the film. Like, yes, there are some people that say The Shining is very slow and boring, but I actually, I think we all appreciate it because The Shining is a slow burn, but every shot is very adds significance to the plot. It's just very beautiful, like something from a museum. One thing that particularly stands out to me is notice like the the carpet design in the the hallway it's you know the like with the orange uh, hexagons it's very it's just something that really stands out to me it feels very surreal it, it doesn't feel like it's belongs in a, your usual hotel it really very surreal something that wouldn't feel out of place for a david lynch film it's yeah. just breathtaking every step of the way to the psychology for one second it's very dreamlike because mm. you know Jung believed that dreams were the unconscious trying to the the, the um, collective unconscious trying to communicate to you through dreams and dreams is where you interact with the the uncon the unconscious mind and there there is a dreamlike state of the overlook that throughout and yeah exactly yeah yeah it's yeah. very it really also like i said feels like we are also tripping along with the with the main characters as well. And also kudos to the music of The Shining as well, to uh, Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkine. Like the music, it's just eerie, very cold, very, like, it's just, it's like attacking your your subconscious. It's, that's the kind of music I we can all associate when we are, descending like spiraling out of control and like the chanting you know the the chants that it feels very eldritch something that's from another world another dimension or should i say something that came out of the depths of hell really well yeah and that's another interpretation when because you could view it as a demonic influence as well because Jack Torn states I would sell my soul for a beer and then Lloyd shows up and it's it's very Faustian sort of a deal with the devil that and I think that's what makes it great is that there are so many things 
beneath the surface that could be going on and there's not a definitive um, answer to them that is why the shining is so timeless. Mm-hmm. Yes. And to continue with your uh, it was the, the theory that the, the Overlook Hotel could be like some kind of hell or demonic influence, another similar interpretation I had of the hotel is that it's like some kind of uh, purgatory, you know what I mean? Like, the place where people who go to, you know, bad people go to before, who are denied access to go to the afterlife because they have some debt to pay. Like, the picture, like, Jack is in the picture there, but not his family because he has done very horrible things that he, like, it's almost like he is already there. He's always been trapped in purgatory since the very beginning and is desperate to escape. That's how one theory I have on what the Overlook Hotel is, some kind of purgatory, really. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting way to see it, too. I know that um, another thing I've kind of been interested by, it's, it really has nothing to do with the film, but it's, it's like a musical project that was really inspired by the film um, came out three years ago by an artist named Caretaker, um, British electronic artist, I believe his name is um, James Kirby. But he created a, an album that's just basically heavily inspired by, by The Shining, and it's a six-hour album. Um, of Essentially, he's trying to create the the feeling of suffering from dementia uh, Alzheimer's. Oh, oh, um, I think... Sorry, I, I think I heard of it. Um, yeah. I know it might be a different one, but there's like a six-hour album, basically, where it's... Mm. Um, is simulates the effects of dementia, where it's... Um, where it starts as cohesive, but it slowly unwinds, and yeah. Exactly, yeah. That's exactly this one, yeah. It's, it's really, it's great. Like, if you love The Shining, I recommend um, experiencing this, because it's the same sort of feeling. I, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's not probably good to compare it to The Shining, um, because uh, obviously the illness is not, you know, it's not a horror film, it's, but it is obviously something terrible to experience. Um, but yeah, the film, the film's music is most, that's the bigger influence is the music, the ballroom music, um, throughout the film. But it really, I feel like the, the film with all of the, all of the ballroom scenes with the music and with the sort of the history of the hotel and the haunting of the hotel and, and the album, how sort of your memories are, are definitely attached, I feel, to music you heard when you were young. And so, in some ways, um, yeah, I, I just, I love the album and I love the movie equally for two different things. The, the movie itself is terrifying and it's scary, but the, the album is actually quite beautiful, but they use pretty much the same style of music in different ways to both mm-hmm. show you something kind of beautiful and sad and something quite scary. Mm-hmm. But sort of, I feel like memories can definitely haunt you or comfort you. Yeah, um, but yes, interesting musical project. If you're if you're listening, yeah. if you want to experience something new, <laughs> awesome. Thank you. I'm um, caretaker. It was called right. 
Yeah, it's called Everywhere at the End of Time. It was like yeah, yeah, yeah. over three years, yeah. uh, six different parts of the album. It's really interesting. Yeah. I know while we're on music, the the band, uh, there's a metal band called Ice Nine Kills mm. that they have a album called The Silver Screen where um, they have songs based on horror movies they can, that are... So um, there's one, they've done one for The Shining, like Friday the 13th, Lock the Boat, um, Jaws, and I, I would give it a listen if you are a fan of horror movies. Of course. And, um, but they, 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 they did one on The Shining, so uh, that's why I'm bringing it up here. <laughs> that's cool, that's really good. I feel like uh movies music i mean they're they're so like uh, interconnected and, and artists are influenced by movies movies are influenced from music yeah. and like it's so interesting when you have companion pieces um that just somehow work yeah. speaking of you mentioned the father earlier i mentioned the father how it's similar to the shining in his interior consistencies of, of the sets but uh also that movie itself is about alzheimer's dementia too okay. which is interesting how those three things connect exactly. but yeah. And also, on the subject of the, the music of The Shining, notice how in some shots, like, when there's nothing happening, there's no ghost, nothing scary or out of the ordinary occurring, There, like, Danny walking down the hallway or Jack writing, the scary music is there, even when there's nothing horrible happening, which really, it really feels like even when nothing is happening on screen, the music really, it like cues the audience, it cues the audience that something horrific is going to happen, or at least is happening. It feels like the hotel is holding, it's tightening its grip on the protagonist's mind, really. It's fantastic, yeah. really good use of music. Yeah, I think that also gives, it, it doesn't let up, it doesn't give you a rest. Like I feel, the only parts that I feel where it sort of breaks the atmosphere is when it cuts to uh, Doc Halloran when he's in his home in, I think, Florida, I want to mm -hmm. say. Uh, yeah. And, like, but other than that, it doesn't let up. It's constant uh, oppression uh, via the soundtrack of this ominous base that's throughout film. Agreed, yeah, and, and like, I think the reason why some, like, some, like your, you mentioned, Matthew, your friends from your film club didn't find The Shining scary because these days people are just used to horror films with CGI, visual effects, and jump scares, but if this film was made today, it would be just brand the the twin girls just jumping at Danny from nowhere. But that scene, you know, where Danny is move is in his tricycle down the hallway, he turns and sees the twins. That there's there are no jump scares, no musical cues whatsoever. But it really succeeds in scaring the audience because it, the the build up to that scene it's it's there and the payoff it's there. And with that, you get one iconic and unnerving scene. I, I would say the contrary, that if it was made today, it, it, 
it was made today when Dr. Slee, when they returned to the Overlook, they basically did beat for beat everything, like the blood elevator, the uh, women, the... Um, but it still worked, but it's just different. I feel like it's more indicative of how not just um, the movies aged, but how we as people have aged and how our perception of horror has changed. That's true. That's... Wow. Like... Like to, the, like to those who uh, know me very well, I, I really appreciate it. I really love it when horror films, you know, don't rely at all on jump scares. Because I feel it's a more smarter tactic is, you know, for the, if, when the horror just comes to us naturally instead of like just jump scares. It's very, very cheap, very lazy way, if I mind, if I mind saying, because... Like mo most horror films could learn from The Shining, and they have with plenty, such as The Witch, um, The Silence of the Lambs, and of course, Hereditary. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of other um, takes on sort of uh, The Shining, there's also interesting kind of trivia uh, I never knew is that they actually made a miniseries. That's right. The yes. Dinos, I think. Yeah, that, that was the one by Stephen King because he didn't like The Shining. He's like, well, I guess I'll do it myself. Mm -hmm. And I think we all know. I haven't seen it, but <laughs> I've seen some scenes from it. And I'm kind of yeah. You know, are, I'm interested to see it, but yeah. Yeah. And there's there's hedge monsters. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. That, that's all I remember from it. Is that yeah. I mean, good for Stephen King for, for going through with it and creating something on his own accord. I think that's great, and I can't judge it without seeing it, but I feel like there's something, something really beautiful about filmmaking and adaptations is watching your idea uh, transform under someone else's vision. I feel like that's something that's really uh, interesting. I, Kind of had that experience with short film, a short film I made that my sequel was then uh, done by a good friend that wrote the sequel and, and directed, and it was really interesting. Kind of see how I kind of my idea came out of a friend's idea. Yeah. Like he created the story, then I wrote the actual script, and then my friend and I directed it. Then my friend directed the sequel, and it was just it was really cool just to see how like three different people could create something. Um, and then who knows where it will go from there. So and you I feel like there's something really... Oh, sorry. sorry. And, and you succeeded. Oh, I, I don't know. I, I could have done better looking back on it. I always feel like I could have done better after <laughs> it comes out, but that's part of it. But I feel like that's something that... Um, yeah, I love adaptations for that reason. I mean, there's so many ways it can go, and it, sometimes it's better than the, the original text, or sometimes it's worse, but... Yeah, but I, I feel like if there's enough effort in, put into it, like same for reboots and that, that if people actually are passionate about it and want to tell their own story rather than just um, repeating what's already been done, it, it can be really great. <clears throat> 
Yeah, as far as um, future, I mean, who knows? Because there could always be more adaptations that come out of The Shining or the text itself that could be something completely new. I mean, that's possible. Um, because you, you can see that with texts that have influenced a number of different movies and some are, some are more obvious or some are more direct and some are more loosely based on it. So, I mean, Shining is a, I haven't read the novel yet, but I know it's a great novel. So I'm interested to see what people do in the future. Who knows? Kind of uh, maybe another. It could be done in another country or another culture, another just yeah. different lens. So who knows? Seems Absolutely. Like. Yeah. Same here. And um, to continue with the overarching question of what makes the shining scary, like to your point, Matt, the fear of the unknown. Like people, we are afraid of what is beyond our comprehension when we cannot grasp, right? Because the first sign that really hooked me that in that really sold the scary part of the shining to me was you know when well, when danny first sees the twins you know at the the re- at the kitchen like the hotel is supposed to be isolated it's just the torrances the torrance family so we figured they should be on their own now right well now we see the twins and we notice that something fishy is going on in here that it really is what really hooked the audience i'd say from the beginning, from the get-go. And even and re-watching The Shining also made me see another thing. The, the best kind of scares are that which is realistic, because The Shining plays on a more realistic situation, which is basically family trauma. Like, first, uh, an individual or people who have had a parent or a significant other who's dealing with some kind of vice or addiction or anger issues like you love them and they love you and then they try their best to you know fight they struggle with their addiction and their issues and then suddenly they just snap and you can no longer trust that person to hurt you and you don't feel safe around them like even if you without the haunted hotel or any of the supernatural elements it is a very disturbingly realistic scenario yeah definitely definitely like you were talking about there's a lot of a lot of, a lot about the film that is surreal but there's a lot of it that's really quite realistic right domestic abuse um, and yeah the violence in the film i mean it's it's done in a way that feels nightmarish, but unfortunately, it's, it's reality for a lot of people. So it's mm-hmm. that's what makes it so disturbing too. Yeah, and on top of that, notice how in mo- most horror films usually also rely on a very high body count and buckets of gore and blood. But in The Shining, there's just one, actually two deaths. You know, with Dick Halloran and Jack, but they are done. There are only two deaths, but even with very little, you know, deaths, The Shining still manages to terrify regardless, showing that at the end of the day, you don't need all that to make The Shining superb and scary in the audience. All you need is just great direction, a top-notch script, and really great acting. Like, there is not a single one of the old the horror conventions in The Shining, not a single jump scare to be found at all. Genius, really. Superb. Brilliant. A plus the resistance. I, I agree with you on that. Oh, absolutely. I feel like um, The Shining... I, I always end up watching it sort of in the wintertime. Mm, uh, the timing. I, 
<laughs> I just feel it's it's really sort of we because of where we live in Canada and Western Canada close to the mountains, it's sort of uh, I, I'm sure like all of us we've all spent a lot of time in the mountains, the Rocky Mountains. It's sort of we're familiar with that environment, maybe stayed in the hotels or, or lodges or whatever, cabins. And so it really adds to that uh, you're kind of familiar familiar with that sense and you've heard stories, ghost stories, paranormal stories uh, while you're maybe camping or in the mountains. So I think it's universal though because like, the movie's loved everywhere, but I feel, yeah, if you have that experience sort of being in isolation or being in a remote part of the world, um, yeah, you understand that it can be incredibly dangerous, especially in the movie itself with the winter storm and how basically cut off from the outside world at that point. And uh, I mean, we've all lived through a year of being in quarantine and we've mm -hmm. seen how it's affected people's mental health in huge ways. And uh, I feel like a lot of the, um, well, Mental health has always has always been a big uh, issue. It's always been, but I feel like uh, it's it's a reliable film. I feel like something that you should. Um, I guess if if you were teaching a class right now, like my professor made us watch it again. I feel like that was that was great because I'm always excited, but I was kind of like, oh, do I have to watch this right now while I'm at home, stuck at home? It just adds to yeah. <laughs> to the depressing nature of being at home. But it's a film, it's art, you have to see it for what it is. And um, it's impactful in that way because it shows you the horrors of, uh, of, of people, but it, it's something that you have to address so you become a better person, right? Exactly. Very true. Very wise words, Big D. And, which brings me to another point of the film, and I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on it. Like, what do you think is the, you know, the, the significance, the symbolism of Room 237, which by the way is Room 213 in the novels, but what is, what do you think it uh, symbolizes of that room? Um, what, what the room itself symbolizes or the, the numbers? Um, both actually, like, like what is it? Any it's an allegory for what? Given how *The Shining* is practically one big allegory on its own. Well, I feel okay. Oh, oh, sorry. I feel like what I mentioned earlier. It's the um, what the apex of of this supernatural in it. It's where Danny was lured to, whether through *The Shining* or just. He, he got there in one way or another, and that is where um, the hotel seduces Jack Torrance into, into his insanity. Uh, so he literally embraced the insanity, let's say. Yeah. Or I would say more so embraced the hotel. Wow. So that's why he never wanted to wanted to stay there forever and ever and ever. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um. What, what do you think it uh it's, it was meant to represent, uh, Dane, my man? Mm, yeah, 
That's a great question. Uh, hmm. I, I feel like Matthew's take on it's pretty pretty solid. I feel like I would agree. Also, maybe. Yeah. Well, it seems it seems as though. Yeah, those are just, we were talking about earlier, primal desires and everything, and how it's sort of, uh, I guess, I really don't know. I can't say for sure without thinking about that more, but <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, I watched the documentary Room 237 oh. and explained it all, but I still don't personally really, no, I still don't really know what I, what I personally you have to take that documentary with a grain of salt because they did yeah. say that that's where the moon landing one was yeah. from and some of them have more credence like the native american influence on the film but you can't take it as fact because it is a I, I would say it is a fan film about it and yeah it's it's not a definitive Fact. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Here's. I, I feel. I feel oh. like. Yeah. There's just. There's so many. So many theories. And. I guess. I feel like I don't see anyone as being. One hundred percent or or de- definitive. No. Except. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. What we've already talked about. But that's what's so interesting about it. I guess. I don't really have a personal opinion, I guess. I just kind of, I watch it and I, and I try to see if there may be the different opinions I've been, I've been told could be uh, accurate. And it kind of it makes me look at it a different way, but I still don't really know. Still question I, it. I believe that this was the whole grand scheme of things in The Shining, because it's a film that that regardless of what your audience is, you are not meant to take it literally with a grain of salt, as Matt says. But this is what I think Room 237 means. Like, I think it's an allegory for, like, lust or resist or temptation. Because if we take the theory that the Overlook Hotel is some kind of purgatory, then Room 237 would be, like, a test to, uh, to resist temptation. Like, our primal instincts would... I would say that we see a beautiful woman, we'd, we'd be aroused by her beauty, and Jack literally embraced a woman despite being married and never having seen this woman before, so he failed, he was unable to resist the temptation, he failed the test, and now he has already been damned to his fate, is how I see it as. Yeah. That's really an accurate interpretation too. I think yes, it's. I feel like uh, at that point in the film too, you're just sort of everything. Everything is just gone haywire. So I, I feel <laughs> at that point, you might as well be able to really see it from in any way because it is just so nonsensical at that point, which I love about it because it just opens up that. Uh, can of worms of just really could be what any what any of the famous traditions have been. Absolutely, yeah. And 
This is definitely a film one needs to watch more than once to truly appreciate, especially with the foreshadowing. You know how, how in the beginning, uh, Ullman said that the caretaker, once he killed his family, chopped them up with an axe, which basically reflects, mirrors what Jack's fate will be at the end of the film. And when Jack says, I will not let the isolation get to me, that's almost like he is tempting fate. when he said there will be no liquor there he's like oh yeah well I've been sober but as it progresses he he does want that liquor Mm -hmm. exactly it's also it's almost like a a commentary on the human condition like sometimes it's very as as easy as it sounds, it's very difficult for people, you know, to change, to move on from their vices, as Jack has shown. It's it's human nature, basically, to try the try the struggling with something, with an imperfection of ours. Yeah. Yeah. So since we are way past the hour mark, what do you guys think is the scariest moment from The Shining? Let's start with you, Big D. Oh, um, scariest moment. Well, I think I'll probably have to say, uh, I don't know, maybe either the, hmm. Okay, I'm probably going to go with uh, the safe, obvious one, but I, I feel like it's just, you, you feel so much adrenaline, but also so much, uh, you kind of it's humorous so it's 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 funny but it's terrifying at the same time it's probably here the here's John C. I mean yeah I mean yeah. so iconic just the axe going through the door and the build up to that um, and at that point you can kind of laugh at it because it's just so iconic it's almost become yeah. funny to see his yeah. face yeah <laughs> but I think the biggest proprietor of that is the Simpsons the Shining parody because yeah, yeah. Exactly. Which, is, which is actually really good. If you're a fan of The Shining, I would recommend watching that. Yeah. And it yeah. also helps that Shelley Duvall's reactions during the whole scene while she's locked in the bathroom, they were really genuine since she was not told ahead of time that Jack Nicholson would be chopping up the door with an axe. And that entire scene took four days to film plus oh, 29 wow. actual doors to use. 29 actual doors. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Yeah. I just I just love the, the angle there, how it's, yeah. uh, it's the, the door and then her in the corner and just the axe just breaking through and you mm-hmm. can just see the door slowly opening. I yeah. feel like, I think I've seen, I saw that as a kid, maybe just that, and that was terrifying without knowing the context of the film. Like, who who, who is that on the other side? Or who was that on the other side? And, uh, it, yeah, that is traumatizing the first time you see it, no doubt. And then it becomes, once you see it enough, it's, it's yeah, kind yeah. of funny. It's funny at, mm-hmm. at, but yeah, the first time you see it, it's dropped. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Even if you haven't watched The Shining, I believe people are quite familiar with that scene. It's one of the most iconic yeah. scenes in the genre, right up there with the shower scene from Psycho or uh, the chest burster scene from Alien, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it, it just feels like there's no way out. 
in that situation when she's in the bathroom, the window is super tight. And I mean, yeah. if there's a, there's a, it's from a great height too. So you, you imagine she might hurt herself even though Danny gets through first, but, yeah. um, yeah, 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 I was going to say just, uh, yeah, to the claustrophobic, uh, uh, feeling you have in that situation, you just being trapped. Uh, yes, it's great. Right. Really excellent choice, man. I was just going to mention that with that, also the, um, how vulnerable she is. Like, even though she does have the kitchen knife, it, it's just wobbling around in her hands. She is terrified at it. And it is, it is shown in really well mm, definitely one of, that's one of the most realistic portrayals of fear and dread I've ever seen in a film really so well done really good job to Shelley Duvall and it's also to Jack Nicholson as well this is like the the turning one of the turning points of the film the point of no going back as well exactly yeah really good choice Dane really good choice thank you and now you're next, Matthew. Here's Matthew. <laughs> yeah. So the shining is really interesting because there's not any big moments. There's no moments that shock you. It's you you feel it throughout the whole film. But if I had to pick one part that really that, that lingers with me is the um, when Danny first sees the twins but mm. not first when he sees them in the hallway and just for a second you see them brutally chopped up and bloodied all over the hallway for a second and then it goes right back it's just it's not much but it does a good job of putting you into this sense of unease and it lingers with you afterwards. Wow. Wow. Really, really good choice. And also that's yet another one of the film's most iconic scenes. Like, in fact, m most of the film's iconic scenes, they weren't even in the novel, actually. The Here's Johnny never was spoken out loud in the, film, in the book. So it's really, really interesting dimension, I'd say. So... Really good choice, Matt. And from my favorite, my, to me, the scariest scene from The Shining happens near the end where, you know, the the man in the bear suit and like the, you know, where Wendy goes up, goes, tries to find Danny, but she finds a man in a bear suit giving uh, oral sex to another man in a tuxedo. It's, it feels, it's just, there's something off it's creepy about that moment it feels very it's like out of place we it there was nothing it was never foreshadowed it's never even brought up again it just happens right there under under the sun like, no explanation it there's no explanation about that and that really makes the scene all the more unsettling and that's i think where the shining gets its power from from the ambiguity the fear of the unknown the unexplained Seriously. Oh god. Yeah, I, I, I don't know who wrote that in. Well, obviously the writer of the film, but 
I, I don't know how they came up with it. It's just it's so it's great, though. It's just, <laughs> you never forget them. Though. Oh, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> I almost wanted it's, to... It's good, it's good humor, too. Oh, it's good humor, too. really tense yeah. part of the film. Mm. It kind of heightens the, the horror because it is just so up of that. Yeah. Mm. I mean, confusion is a good word to describe it. Jesus, that's surreal. If that, that's one way to describe this entire film, it's surreal. And the bear suit, the man in the bear suit, is a really good testament to that surrealism. What, am, what is this? It feels like no. it really feels like you are also with in Wendy's position, like you are also losing her mind, losing my, your mind along with her. Wow. Yeah. I almost wanted to give this one to the scene where you know Jack interacts with the lady in room 237, you know, when it's she's a sorry, it's a beautiful woman, but then turns into a decaying, like corpse like lady. And then she's laughing. That is just one image that you will not forget anytime soon. Not at all. So, sleep tight tonight. Okay. Good choice. Good choices. And really, and the maze, like, the maze, that's another symbol too, like, when in fun fact the, the actors they really got lost in the maze like it took about an hour to find them I think it represents how this film is like a maze like the characters are getting lost in themselves lost in their own insanity really which is why I think really yeah <laughs> um, hotel hotel itself is a maze there's mm the maze outside and then the kind of psychological maze. Yeah. Uh, it's great. I, I just love that. Yeah, but no yeah. corn, though, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's all the mazes there. <laughs> and Danny has got to be one of the smartest characters in a horror film, especially for a child. You know how he retraced his steps to fool his dear old dad into going the wrong way. Really smart kid. Yeah. Or, or it was a shiny, you know. Wow, maybe. Yeah. Wow, yeah. amazing. Man. He could walk backwards a bit and then turn the corner. Trust uh, me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, Stanley Kubrick was a bit of a very hard ass with Shelley Duvall and most of the actors. He was a really chill dude with uh, Danny Johnson, the actor who played Danny, which I think is justified given how Danny, the actor, is basically just a kid. Yeah, I think he like went to be like a carpenter after this. Oh. Yeah, he, he didn't continue acting afterwards. I think his only other role was he returned as a cameo for Doctor Sleep. Oh. He, I think he was like one of the dads at the baseball game. I want to ah, say. Ah, I see. And uh, also, that or that 
staircase scene yeah that's to your point man yeah like that was actually shot 127 times it's even in the guinness book of world records for a scene with the most takes like that's actually a trademark of stanley kubrick like he loves i mean he loves to like you know you know to reshoot so many scenes in his film so many pivotal scenes just wow like stanley kubrick he may be a great filmmaker that's for sure but it would be a nightmare to work for him, I'd say. Yeah. Yep. I, I don't want to assume anything, but I wonder if, like, Danny Lloyd was uh, a bit scared by the whole experience. I can only imagine Stanley Kubrick and his, his antics are insane. Hmm. I think it was him not wanting to go into film further. Well, I, I think uh, that was just completely unrelated because a lot yeah. of time in movies when there's child actors, they like would put they they do put care into not trying to scare them because the movie's not made for them it's made for adults the audience so what they do is like they introduce the monster as like in makeup saying hey i'm just a person in a suit and they they sort of um break the illusion that the audience is supposed to have with them and they 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 do treat them with care which is really good exactly yeah in fact danny uh danny johnson the actor who plays danny he during the whole experience he didn't even know he was filming for a horror film he legitimately thought he was filming for a comedy yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's just a lot yeah also another quick piece of trivia the twins in the movie aren't actually twins they're sisters that i think are about a year or two apart mm. so yeah sorry to ruin that for you <laughs> yeah but, but they well, just cast it together and it's like oh this works so, yeah speaking of the actors also i just a movie I watched yesterday. Yes, yesterday. Um, had it was the only other movie I've seen with um, uh, Scat in uh, Scat in or Benjamin Crothers. I hope I'm mm-hmm. saying his name right. But uh, great performance from him. I I I, I recognized him because this movie was from 1964. It was Lady in a Cage. I watched it yesterday for a film class, and I was like, 1964. That was like 16 years before The Shining, but he looked the same. And I was like, whoa, because the movie's in black and white. It's from a totally different era. Yeah. But it was really, I was really surprised to see him so, so much earlier in film, but it makes sense because I think, yeah, The Shining is Yeah. Great performance from him. Nice. Yeah, for sure. And also, um, one of the things, like, while the Overlook Hotel, while it truly it may or may not be as far as the film is the main the, the antagonizing force of the shining it really looks so beautiful and that's the thing too like it really that's the thing the shining really succeeds in fooling the audience because when you think of the overlook hotel and you say it's a haunted hotel it doesn't look anything like a haunted hotel there are no cobwebs no dark places it's very colorful and welcoming like a place that can easily trick you, which really also adds to the horror, the feeling of unease in The Shining, too. 
In fact, I've always, after learning of the, the Stanley Hotel, I'd love to just visit the place, like the behind the scenes footage. I, I really yeah. love to visit that place. <laughs> Yeah, I would stay at the Overlook Hotel. Like honestly, if it was operating as a, like not not as a caretaker or whatever, that that's not for me. But if I was just a guest, it seems like a pretty nice place. Like yes. yeah, there's a dining room, a ballroom, um, a big maze. Who doesn't like mazes? You know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and if there's other people there. It would oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Be a lot better. Yeah, so someone else can go insane. You're the room beside you. I'll take um, two thirty-six. Overlook Hotel. Maybe in the summertime too. Yeah, no, not the summertime. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, but there's nice hike trails around there. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Overlook Hotel, Travago. <laughs> yeah. So, really, and that is all the time we have left for today's episode thank you dane and thank you man for showing up here like i really have been looking forward to doing this episode the shining is one of the greatest horror films of all time like if you go on different lists of like top 50 top 100 you'll find the shining is at number one even if it's not number one it's close to the top and it really succeeds in everything it does it's a really not a great adaptation that we can all agree on, but as a great film, it succeeds, it checks every box, yeah. and it's one of a cinematic masterpiece from start to finish. And to those who say that The Shining is not scary and it's boring and a slow burn, I'm glad we did this episode, because we have corrected them. Yeah, I know one of the things with that is, even for its time, it was one of the only big budget horror movies because horror at the time was viewed as this b-movie um like curse of frankenstein and all that and then only previous years previous i think um rosemary's baby was a big one Mm -hmm. but other than that it's all sort of this cheaply made not not like cheaply made as in they didn't put effort into it, but they didn't have the budget to do it. And the 80s was full of that sort of thing. But I feel like um, The Shining is one of the first steps into making horror mainstream that uh, came to a climax with The Exorcist and with Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. We're seeing more representation in now. Definitely, yeah. And The Shining continues to inspire like so many horror films of today, namely Midsummer and Jordan Peele's films Get Out and Us. It's very yeah. Oh yeah, groundbreaking. yeah. You've noticed that. Uh, yes, Get Out, I, I'm pretty sure they use the blue, similar blue uh, font, I think, in the intro credits. Ooh, if I'm not mistaken. That's right, yes. Or was it... I saw the two films kind of back and back recently. Uh, I'm forgetting. Uh, you can maybe edit this part while I'm thinking. <laughs> oh yeah, it's the light blue font. Very reminiscent. Then the um, floor pattern is the go-to Easter egg for. Um, 
Uh, just to reference it, like I think even the new, um, what is it? Shoot. Uh, it's the new animated movie on Netflix, the Whatever versus the Machines. Mm. Um, it's by Sony. There's like socks with it, so it's 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 iconic, and mm-hmm. I feel like now that we're in the era of references to better pieces of work, I'm afraid to say. Um, uh, we're going to see a lot more of these just little hints and nods. And, like, for Ready Player One had a whole segment right. based on it because of its icon. Um, iconic. Because it's so iconic. Um, but an interesting part about that is that section isn't in the book for Ready Player One. It's actually... It was a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, but I think they thought that people wouldn't want to watch that for I don't know, like fifteen minutes. So they they was like people like The Shining, so let's go The Shining, which I don't think is a good fit, honestly. Out of everything, out of all the eighties movies they could pick, they they picked a good one, but I don't think it fitted thematically with it. Probably, probably, yes. And also, for one final reference as well, no, the the opening scene, the, that tracking shot with the car heading to the Overlook Hotel was actually inspired by the opening scene of another horror film, Funny Games. Oh, yeah. I have to watch that movie this next week, so that's going to oh, be in my mind. Oh, yes. Just, just by chance. Just by chance. That's interesting. I don't think about that while I watch. Like The Shining is, it's a film that the legacy it has created, even now, it can still be felt. And I'm, it, I'm really impressed, really astonished that even after more than 40 years later, people are still talking about The Shining, making discussions, theories, and interpretations. It still maintains its relevance. This is a film that is not outdated by any means. And to call The Shining overrated would have to be quite the understatement, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to, uh, like I said, who knows what else can happen in the next years. Um, I'm, I'm very open to the idea. Maybe not, I don't, I don't want to see it remade exactly. Uh, shot for shot, that'd be, I'm never interested in those things, but I am interested to see, like, influenced by it what sort of obviously uh lose to it in the future so that'll be, be interesting yeah. i feel like we wouldn't get a direct remake like some other things i feel like the most we're gonna get in terms of a remake would would be dr sleep because yeah. they 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 do revisit it shot for shot but they add to it they they don't make it about it, but they include it in the, um, as part of their story that they're trying to tell. That's true, yeah. In fact, the, the Overlook Hotel doesn't really show up until the last third of the film. But either way, Doctor Sleep, it really it becomes a sequel of The Shining by the last third. But after, before that, it really stands out on its own. 
So really, this is really um, a masterpiece The shining all, every single shot, even if it feels like a slow bar, nothing feels like it's rushing or, you know, slowing down. It's a perfect mix. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's haunting at times, and it's very intellectually stimulating, I have to say. So, kudos. Great night for a party, isn't it? Yeah. So, with all that said, Thank you, Dane, and thank you, Matt. Uh, Dane, would you like to do the closing? Okay. Sure. That was our episode with Matthew Zaharia on The Shining. Thank cool. you, Matthew, for being on the show for an eighth time, I believe. Yes. yes. Number eight, and many more yeah. uh, coming up in the future. Yes. Thank you. It's been an honor each time. We look forward to many more to come. Honored to have you. Have a great weekend, everyone. You too, Dane. Bye, man. See you next week. See you. Adios. Bye -bye. Ciao.